for the class this morning. Uh, let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get things uh, going here with our study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for this day. Lord, it's such a beautiful day outside. We thank you for the sunshine and for the beautiful spring weather. And Lord, we just uh, we ask your blessing upon this day, Lord, uh, as we meet here together to uh, celebrate you and to learn from your word and fellowship together. Uh, Lord, we just uh, we pray for your blessings and, and for your protection and for your guidance uh, and just that you would be pleased with everything that we do here today. And Lord, we just uh, we ask this in your precious name. Amen. All right. Uh, two weeks ago, of course, last week was Easter and we didn't have uh, Sunday school class last week. But two weeks ago, we started taking a look at uh, some Old Testament passages dealing with with end times. Um, we had read in, in, you know, in Revelation chapter 10, uh, which was the, the last uh, part of Revelation that we did, in verses 5 through 7, it says, Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And so we, we've taken, uh, we took a week, uh, two weeks ago, and we started looking at some of those Old Testament passages. Like he said there, that these things had been announced to his servants the, the prophets many, many years before, hundreds, thousands of years before. Uh, and so we started taking a look at some of those passages, and I said I wanted to do at least one more week of that and take a look at, at uh, you know, kind of some, some Old Testament texts. And, and so that's what we're going to do again today. Um, we're going to look at, at, we've kind of continued to look at some of these Day of the Lord passages. Uh, now, the Day of the Lord passages I mentioned two weeks ago, and I just want to mention it again, there, there's no real consensus on, on exactly what period of time we're talking about. Scholars, even very conservative, very uh, you know, scholars that come from like a dispensational background, uh, they don't even agree on like what period of time we're talking about. Like some say it's just the tribulation, others the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennial kingdom. Uh, there are also some scholars, including conservatives, who believe that some of the day of the Lord passages are actually used of events back in the Old Testament times, that the day of the Lord also included days of God's judgment on Israel back at, at that time too, uh, you know, like, like the Babylonian invasion. But like I said, there's no real agreement on that. Some say, no, no, that, you know, they're all future. Others are like, no, they're all past. Uh, you know, most are kind of like, well, they're a mixture of future and past. So it, you know, it gets very difficult as you start looking at them sometimes to know exactly what you're dealing with. So we're going to look at a few of these passages here today, and we're going to look at some things um, that are probably at least part of them in the past, but then kind of have a, a, an element of, of, of future to them also. Uh, and, and I want to look at a couple, a uh, little bit more obscure passages. I think it kind of be a, a little bit of uh, fun to kind of look at some of these places. Uh, I, I heard one, one guy, he used to call these spots the places in your Bible where the Bible sticks together. 
because you, you know that you never really open them up, so you know the the the, the pages stick together there. So we're going to be in some of the uh, minor prophets today. We're going to look at Joel, uh, Joel and Zephaniah and Obadiah and and some of these uh, places today, and we're going to look at some of the things that they say uh, about the the day of the Lord. So first, I want you to turn to Joel, okay? And, and, you know, I went, went ahead and marked mine all early so I can just, like, you know, go right to them so you guys don't have that luxury. Um, but turn to Joel chapter 1. Uh, if it helps you, it's right after Hosea. That always helps me. Hosea is a little bit, it's one of the larger minor prophets, and so you got a little bit more to work with there. As you're leafing through, it doesn't skip over it so quick. So if you can find Hosea, just keep going and you'll find, you'll find Joel. I want to start by looking at Joel chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20. And this is speaking of a locust invasion. Now you remember a couple weeks ago we looked in Revelation at a locust invasion, but the reality is it was not, uh, not literal physical locusts, uh, but probably demon locusts, demons that, that looked in some way like locusts, uh, and, and we, we discussed that back then, I'm not going to rehash it all now, uh, but locusts were a, uh, were, were a very frightening reality in the ancient world. And so they were often used uh, as a picture of, of judgment. Before we read our passage in Joel, and you guys can turn here if you like, or you can just mark it down uh, and just listen to me read it, I want to I read something from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 38 through 42. Now this is in an entire section of blessings and curses. These are blessings if the, if the Jewish people keep God's covenants they are curses, however, upon them if they don't. What will happen to them if they don't live up to their side of the bargain, okay? Uh, and I want to read verses 38 through, uh, uh, through, uh, uh, 38 through 42 and show you how locust was actually said by God to be a curse if, you know, against Israel if they did not follow him, if they did not keep, keep faith with him. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the olive, because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them, because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. So there, you know, we, we see in, in that, you know, just brief few verses that, that one of the curses that God told the Jewish people uh, that will come upon you if, you know, if, if you keep breaking my laws, you know, this is one of the curses that you're going to face. Uh, it, it, will, it will be locusts and the destruction of your crops. So I want you to think now, if you're a Jew... And a minor prophet like Joel comes to you and he starts prophesying. And he prophesies a locust invasion. Where's your mind going to, or where should your mind initially go? 
right to the fact that, hey, this is one of the things God said is going to happen to us if we are sinning and we don't repent of our sins. You know, and this is one of the judgments that will come upon us as a, as a nation. So I want you to look at Joel chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before your very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods, and the storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture, even the flocks of the sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, out for, uh, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the, the trees of the, of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Now, that picture of destruction, uh, pretty much every commentator I read says that that's, that's kind of like a picture of what it looks like after locusts go through. You know, and, and it, it, almost everyone agrees that this is, this is a, a locust attack that's being spoken of here. In fact, just following this, he's going to talk about a locust invasion. Um, so pretty much everybody agrees that this is kind of like a, you know, this is, this is a locust attack. Where people disagree is, is this future? Is this a prophecy of end times? Or is this something that was, you know, to happen in the day that the prophet was actually writing and to the people he was writing it to? Most scholars that I, I read, including, like I said, including, you know, very conservative dispensationalists, believe that this it was contemporary to the time period, that it actually happened during, at some point during that time. Now, there are some who do not, some who see it as future, but they are actually very few. The, the number is very small. Um, you know, most see this as something that happened during the time that, that, that Joel was writing. Uh, and, and that's kind of the whole point is Joel is telling them, look, you know, this is what's going to happen to the land and hearken back to the curses of Deuteronomy. You know, this is coming upon you because of your sins, you know, because, because we as a people, Israel, have sinned against God. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's how most people see it. Where a lot of the controversy comes is, is the beginning of the next passage, because some continue to see it as, as kind of a, a continuation of the, the locust you know, attack that we just read about. Others see it, no, no, this is a future thing. Because of kind of a change in the language and, and things that happen a little bit later on in Joel that we'll look about here in a minute. So I want to look at the first 11 verses of Joel chapter 2. He says, blow the trumpet, and this is a, a picture of an invasion. Blow the trumpet, sound the alarm in my holy hill. Let all who live in the, in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. That idea of blow the trumpet, that's, that's the shofar, the ram's horn. And it was an idea of, of, of someone standing up on the ramparts. Uh, Jerusalem, in uh, uh, most of the, the, the ancient cities at that time, were, were fortified cities. They had, they had walls around them, and, and guards would stand on the walls, and they could see someone, you know, an invasion coming from a distance. 
Uh, and so this is a picture of someone standing up there and blowing the shofar, blowing the ram's horn, you know, alerting the whole city, you know, an invasion is coming, okay? But we see here that this is, is the day of the Lord. Uh, this invasion is part of the day of the Lord. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the, the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as, as never was never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, uh, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. You see the picture of before them, everything looks like Eden. It's just beautiful. It's, it's luscious. Behind them there's nothing. It's like a desert. And again, that's very similar to what happens with, you know, when, when, when locusts swarm and come through. They just, you know, everything looks great ahead of them, but it's like a burning fire. They just eat through like fire eats through something. And whatever's left in their path is just destruction, okay? And so that's kind of the picture that, that, it's, that it's painting here. It says, they have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry uh, with a noise like that of, of chariots. They leap over the mountains like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. Again, that's kind of a, a if you read kind of ancient descriptions of what locusts uh, swarms look like. One, people often describe locusts as looking like horses, just kind of like this does, because they have that, that kind of long kind of face to them, kind of like a horse does. Uh, and, and they say that the, the sound of them is just extraordinary. You know, like, like, almost like a, like a crackling of fire, like, as he uh, descri descri describes it here, uh, and, and almost kind of like an army coming at you, like just millions and millions of of locusts, and you can't hardly imagine the, the sound or the sight of it. So again, everybody pretty much agrees that this is the imagery that's being used. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes and the heavens trembles. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at, at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Now, when you get into the second part of the passage, that's kind of where people start to diverge. There are some that say, well, see, it's still just talking about nothing but locusts. It's just, you know, it's a continuation of what we saw at the end of chapter 1. The problem is, and why a lot of scholars say, well, no, this isn't talking about just locusts anymore. It's now using that idea of a locust swarm to picture an actual human invasion. Because it says they run through defenses, they, they scale walls, they sneak into houses, you know, uh, things that, that, you know, that would be stretching the metaphor pretty far for, you know, for locusts, if it's just locusts. So a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of scholars and, 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 you know, a lot of very top scholars believe that this is talking about an actual invasion, not, it's using that idea of locusts at the end of 
chapter 1, and now it's saying there's going to be an actual invasion of people, and it will resemble a locust swarm. It'll come across people and, and leave things you know, decimated just like locusts do. You know, they'll, they'll get into everything. They'll destroy everything just like locusts do. And it will be frightening just like, you know, like a locust invasion. So those are kind of like the two options. The real question, and, and I, you know, I don't know what the, the numbers would be of who holds to what. I would say probably most conservative scholars believe that this is an actual invasion. Probably the majority of them. Not all of them, but probably the majority. The question is, when does it take place? And that's where they are very torn. Some look at this, and what they see is, is essentially the Babylonian invasion. You know, when, when Babylon came and invaded Israel and took, you know, t- well, invaded Judah and, and took away Judah into captivity, that that is what's being talked about here. That this is like a, you know, looking forward to that. That this is a an army invading. There are others, however, look at it and they go back to what we read in in Revelation chapter nine a few weeks ago, of an invasion of kind of locust demons that come upon the earth, and they think that is what's happening here. Now, I use this passage because it's a fascinating passage because it points out the difficulty that's involved in in figuring out some of these Old Testament passages. You know, on one hand, you have what almost everybody agrees is a literal locust invasion. And then, right after that, you have an invasion of some sort. But is it locusts? Is it people? And if it is people, is it back in, in the time of the prophet, or is it future? So you guys get the, the, the difficulty. You, you, you know, what, what I want to point out is how difficult sometimes it is. I, I think you know, you, sometimes you guys can hear me say to you, you know, it's really difficult for scholars to figure out exactly what's going on here. But that's just words I'm saying to you. You, know, you don't really necessarily get how difficult this might be. So I wanted to use this passage to point out to you, you see the dif- difficulties of it. The language could fit either way. So what is it? You know, and, and look, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, you know and, and the reality is no one really knows for sure. No scholar knows for sure. You know, you can read very biblical, very, I mean, famous Old Testament scholars, and if you read five of them, you're probably going to get at least three different opinions on this. You know, some are going to go, nope, it's just locusts. Some are going to go, nope, it's, it's humans. That'll probably be the most of them, three or four out of the five, but then those are going to say it, it happened back in, in, in the day that, that Joel, you know, sometime after Joel wrote it, and then others are going to say, no, this is all future. So you guys get the idea. You know, it, it, can, it can be very difficult. And, you know, the, the day of the Lord passages themselves can be very difficult. No one really doubts that a lot of them are future. In fact, probably most of them are future. But are any of them 
were any of them meant for the people of their day? And that's where we have to be careful because a lot of times we assume that everything prophets did, they did for our benefit thousands of years later. Well, that doesn't even make sense. They were sent as prophets, sent by God to the people of their day to give warnings to the people of their day. That's the main thing they did. The main thing a prophet did was not to speak like future prophecies. The main thing a prophet did was confront the people of their day with their sins. Pretty much every prophet we have in the Old Testament, that was their initial calling from God. Go to this people and say this to them because they are doing this and this is what I will do if they do not repent. That's the major job of a prophet. However, also part of a prophet's what they did was God gave them things, gave them utterances that were future. The difficulty comes sometimes for scholars to figure out which ones are future and which ones are, at this point, now past. If you, you, know, if you ask me what I kind of lean to on this, I think probably at least part of this is future. And I'll, and I'll show you why. As we turn a little further on in Joel, uh, you know, in, in kind of verses 12 uh, through 17, you know, Joel is kind of talking, the Lord is telling the people to rend their hearts, you know, tear your heart up, make your heart soft again, turn to me, you know, is, is, is kind of like what he's trying to say. Uh, have a soft heart and listen to what I'm trying to say. And then kind of, the, you know, God gives them answers and, and talks about a time, you know, of, of healing uh, to, come, to come upon them. And then if you look at verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 28 of Joel chapter 2, it says, And afterwards I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the, survi the survivors whom the Lord calls. And continue over into chapter uh, 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the future's of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my, pe my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. And, and we can just stop, stop there. Uh, that, I, you know, to me, that is clearly future. And so I think, you know, very likely that kind of first part of Joel 2 is probably also future. Uh, it, it, it could be at, at contemporary to that time, but I think at the very least, this, the end of Joel here is certainly future. It is Joel looking to a time of ultimate, of two things, of one ultimate healing of Israel, which we know has not taken place yet, and it's looking to a time where God will, will gather together the nations of the world uh, into one place in the valley of Jehoshaphat and he will essentially, you know, a time of judgment is what he says. You know, I will judge you in that place someday because what, have you, what you have done to my people. 
which also has not happened yet. So I think clearly that part of, of Joel is, 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 is future. It is, it is coming yet. There's a day when God is going to you know, punish Israel for their sins, but he will use that punishment to, to bring that remnant of Israel back to himself. And like he said, there won't be any need for prophets or anything anymore because he says everybody will essentially be able to prophesy. Everybody, you know, God's word will be in the hearts of all his people at some point in time. You know, he is going to bring healing. He's going to bring a, a time of restoration. And he will bring a time of judgment for the things that people have done to Israel. But that's not yet. So that's, the, you know, that's future. So that's one passage. Any, any questions about that? You guys get what I'm talking about here. All right. Okay, so let's look at Zephaniah. I'll give you another one. Find Zephaniah. Nothing else will exercise your uh, Bible finding skills. We'll look at another day of the Lord passage in Zephaniah, just a, a short passage here, five verses. We'll look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Everybody with me? All right. It says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and, and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of dis distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all the people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their, uh, their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Now, I want you to think back to some of the passages, the last, really the last couple of weeks uh, that we were in Revelation in, in chapters 9 and 10. Doesn't it sound remarkably similar? You know, uh, the, these terrible judgments that come on the earth at that time uh, and how you know, God is trying to get people to repent, but people simply won't repent. They are too stubborn and they will not repent of their sins and God just keeps bringing judgment upon them. Uh, you notice here, and again, you know, some scholars think that this is a picture of what took place at you know when, when Israel was invaded, uh, and and other scholars believe that this is, is future. But the one thing I think that makes at least me lean toward toward future is the fact that this is a, a worldwide thing. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Now, does that literally mean no, everybody on the earth will be wiped out? 
Now, now it, it, it's probably talking about an end to the power of people, the end to rebellion, uh, you know, an end to our kind of rule of the earth. Because we know from other passages that not everybody will be, will be wiped out. So this is, is talking more of an end to, you know, the, the fact that the sinful reign of man upon the earth someday will come to an end. Uh, and this will be worldwide, not just in one location, but worldwide. But you notice how similar some of the language is to what we saw in Revelation the last few weeks there, in, in chapters 9 and 10. Uh, those, those invasions that take place there, uh, including the demonic invasion uh, uh, you know, that looked like locusts, and then later on, you know, the, the invasion that, that comes from the east. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we see those invasions take place, and, and it seems to be very similar to the language that we see here. Uh, that Zephaniah, you know, at this moment was, was, was prophesying something that would come at a future time, that would come upon all of the earth, uh, and, and it, would, it would look like this. Uh, and so, again, that seems to kind of fit um, you know, what uh, Zephaniah was talking about, what we see in, in Revelation. Now, I want you to turn to Obadiah, another obscure passage, but it's not far from Zephaniah. Just go back a few books from Zephaniah. It's right after Amos. So, Obadiah is a very short book. It only has one chapter. In fact, you could even say it doesn't have a chapter. It's just one book. So instead of like writing Obadiah chapter 1 verses whatever, you just kind of wrote Obadiah whatever verses. We are going to look at verses uh, 10 through 20. I want to start out with verses 10 through 14. I want to read them and then I want to give you the background for what is being talked about in these, in these verses. Obadiah 10 through 14. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction." nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in, in their calamity. In the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Okay, now what is this talking about? Well, one, Obadiah is writing a prophecy against Edom. Now, does anybody know who Edom was? Or, you know, or even where Edom was? Anybody have any ideas? The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And if you remember Esau from the Old Testament, Esau was, was the brother of Jacob. Uh, and they had a thorny relationship. Okay, if you remember that story, they, they did not always get along well. Uh, they were reconciled, you know, toward the end. 
but unfortunately, their descendants never reconciled. Where the brothers ultimately did, uh, the, you know, the descendants of, of, of Esau never did. And, and the Edomites had a very thorny history with Israel. Uh, you know, they, they fought against Israel on and off for pretty much most of the Old Testament. Uh, and so this is a prophecy against them. Uh, you know, in, in fact, most of you have heard like the, 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 the passage that uh, Paul quotes uh, in, in Romans chapter 9 where he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. You know where that passage comes from? It doesn't come from the actual life stories of Jacob and Esau. It comes from here, from Obadiah. And it's not talking about the person Jacob and the person Esau. It's talking about the descendants of Jacob and Esau, which often went by their name, by, by J, were often called Jacob and called Esau. You know, and, and, and so, you know, th that's God's judgment upon Esau for what they have done, upon Edom for what they have done to his people. Now, the question is, what, what event is he talking about here? He's talking about, you know, obviously sometime when Israel was invaded, you know, well, particularly Judah was invaded, you know, the, the, the southern two tribes, because he's talking about an invasion of Jerusalem, a time where Jerusalem was invaded and that the Edomites aided the invaders, they helped the invaders against Israel or against Judah. Now remember, the Edomites and the Israelites were cousins. They were related by blood. They should have been helping one another. But instead, the Edomites, when this invasion took place, they saw it as an opportunity and they helped the invaders. Now you got to know something a little bit about where the Edomites lived. They lived in the southern part of what is modern-day Jordan. Modern-day Jordan, uh, you know, which, which kind of sits on the, the like the eastern border uh, of Israel, like kind of right along, you know, the, the spine of Israel, if you will. Modern-day Jordan, it, it kind of makes up three ancient peoples uh, that the Bible speaks of in this time. The Ammonites, uh, you know, were one. Uh, the other one's slipping my mind. Uh, and, and, and the Edomites uh, were one of them. The Edomites were the southern part of what is modern-day Jordan. Okay? How many of you have heard of Petra? Remember the Christian rock band Petra? That's where they got their name was the capital of Edom. Petra was Edom's capital. It was a city built literally in the rocks, cut out of the rocks, uh, you know, up, up in this, this real narrow valley within, the Mount, uh, within Mount Sire. Mount Sire essentially means the Red Hairy Mountains, and if you remember, you know, which is a strange thing to name a mountain, but they kind of have a reddish look to them. So they're the Red Hairy Mountains, and if you remember the, the, the description of Esau in the Bible, what did it say about him? He was red and hairy. So literally, the, the mountains are named after their, their, their red hairy founder, which seems strange, but, you know, that's what it is. So, you know, that, that's where they, they were at. Later, a group called the Nabataeans would kick them out of there, and they would go down into the southern you know, kind of parts of, of what is modern-day Israel, and that's kind of where they would, they would set up shop, in a, in a place called Idomea. But, you know, at, at this time, they're in the mountains there. 
Now, I want you to think about most fights don't take place in the mountains. Some do. But, you know, mountains are notoriously hard places for battles to take place, and especially in ancient times. In ancient times, where, like, where people used horses and chariots and things like that, it was awfully hard to fight in mountains. But mountains were used as places where you could kind of sneak in on your enemy and swoop down on them. And the mountains are right along Israel's border, along Judah's border. And that's what this is talking about. The, you know, when the invasion took place, the Edomites used their mountain territory to let the invaders of Israel, of, Israel, of, Jer- of Jerusalem, come through their territory and swoop down out of the mountains upon, upon Jerusalem. You guys get the picture? Not only did they do that, but as you see pointed out here, they actually then looted their, you know, their cousins. You know, let me, let me again, it, it says, on the day that you stood aloof while strangers carried off uh, his wealth, uh, you know, carried off the wealth of Jerusalem, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his, his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So the uh, one, they rejoiced over it. When they saw this invasion, they were like, whoo-hoo, yeah, Israel's getting theirs. You know, Judah's getting theirs. Man, they took Jerusalem, great. And God's prophesying against them because they've done that. One, you're boasting against your cousin in the day of his, his calamity. And you shouldn't do that. Then notice the next thing he says. Uh, in the... Uh, in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity, in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. So they literally went in in the aftermath of the invasion and took things for themselves. They looted Jerusalem, or, or at the very least, looted the Jewish people who were trying to escape Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what, but they took things that belonged to the Jewish people. And God says, you you know, instead of helping your cousins, instead of helping your blood, you rejoiced at their calamity and you looted them. You took their wealth. Notice what else they did. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. They literally blocked the mountain passes. So as people tried to escape the invasion and hide up into the mountains, their own cousins, the Edomites, cut them down or captured them and handed them over to their their invaders. And God says, because you've done that, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He prophesies what he will do to Esau because of that, to Edom because of that. Now, what invasion is this being spoken of? (coughs) There were four invasions of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Two, we know, are are not really what's taking place. One was an invasion by by Egypt, uh, and another one was actually an invasion by Israel. The the ten northern tribes actually invaded Judah uh, at one point. 
But those, yeah, we know those two are not what's, what's being talked about here. So scholars kind of are torn between two. There was one point where the Philistines uh, uh, and, and the um, Arabians combined to attack Jerusalem. Uh, that took place uh, during the reign of Jehoram in, from 848 to 841 B.C. Series of invasions by a combined Philistines and, and Arabian uh, troops. Philistines were, you know, to, to Israel's, uh, you know, west and over toward the coast. The Arabians were to, to their uh, east and northeast over on the other side of, the, of those mountains that we're talking about. And so some people think that's the invasion that we're talking about here. Um, others think it's, it's the Babylonian invasion. And, and actually, when we talk about the Babylonian invasion, it was actually a series of invasions that took place between 605 and 586 B.C. The Babylonians came in in a series of invasions, captured you know, parts of Israel. That's where Daniel uh, and, and you know, his contemporaries were taken away in one of the earlier invasions. Uh, and then ultimately in 586, the Babylonians came in and just destroyed everything and, and carried away the rest of the captives and, and killed the rest. And they left some stragglers there that they didn't see as a problem and they just left them there. So it's one of those two. And the reality is no one really knows for sure which one God is referring to here. The people at the time probably knew. You know, when Obadiah wrote this, the people probably knew what, what, the, what invasion was being spoken of. But we, you know, obviously, uh, you know, are, are now almost 3,000 years removed from this, and so we've kind of lost through time which one of those two invasions is being spoken of here. But the point is that during one of those invasions, you know, God, you know, God saw the, the treatment of the Edomites against his own people, and God prophesied against that. Look at verses 15 through 20 at what he says to the Edomites. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So one of the things God you know, says in, in, in the day of the Lord is people will get what they have coming to them. What they have done, they'll get it back. Remember those souls under the altar that are crying out to God for, you know, for, for justice in Revelation? God, how long will it be? And God tells him, you're going to have to wait just a little longer until I've accomplished everything I want to accomplish. Well, remember as we read chapter 10, what did the angel say in chapter 10? There will be no more delay. This is the time that all these things will be accomplished. So all these prophecies that go back to, to a lot of these ancient times, and there are so, so many of them, we're just dealing with just a handful so I can give you guys a taste of this. The time when all these things, God says, will be ultimately fulfilled. Some of them had, you know, some fulfillment at earlier times. The time when they were all ultimately be fulfilled will be, you know, the time leading up to the second coming of Christ. And then ultimately in second coming when Jesus, you know, ultimately destroys his, his enemies. So he warns them, you're going to get what you have coming. You know, you did this and you thought, I didn't pay any attention to you. You thought you could get away with this, but you can't. And you're, you're going to get it back someday. 
And it, it actually warns all the nations too. Notice, it's, it's, you know, this is coming on all the nations. You'll get what you deserve, essentially. You'll get the judgment that you deserve. God is a just God. He says, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. Picture of like Edom coming and celebrating, drinking and, and celebration. Woohoo! Israel got theirs. The Jewish people got theirs. Judah got theirs. Let's celebrate. Let's drink and be merry. And God says, oh yeah, you, just like you drank on my holy hill, I'm going to give you a drink that you're going to just keep drinking and drinking and drinking and you won't like the drink I'll pour for you. It'll be as if you never were. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire. And Joseph a flame. Esau will be a stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him there will be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath and the exiles from Jerusalem uh, who are in Sepharad. And by the way, nobody knows where Sepharad is at. Uh, it's kind of lost to modern times. We'll possess the towns of the Negev. Uh, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and, and the kingdoms will be the Lord's. So God essentially prophesies two things for Esau, for Edom. Total destruction of the nation of Edom. They will cease to exist as a nation. And then the territory they had the places they possessed will one day be possessed by others mostly by Israel okay so that's the picture the first part of that has taken place already Edom does not exist there are no Edomites Edom doesn't you know like I said it's that's modern day Jordan now and there is no land of Edom there are there are no Edomites uh you know so in, in some ways, that first part of that has probably already taken place. Second part, where the land that once was controlled by the Edomites uh, will now be controlled by others. Some argue that that has taken place, but others argue that is still future. That that will be part of the judgment of the end times, where God will take those lands and turn, turn that over to, part of it to Israel and part of it to, he talks here to the people of the desert, the people of the, the, the Negev. So that's, you know, one fascinating story of how an Old Testament passage that's very obscure to us, that we don't read very often. You know, how many of us honestly, ha you know, have read Obadiah 10 through 20 and really gave it any thought? Like maybe when you're reading through the Bible in a year and you read through that and you're just reading to get through it, you know, whew, got Obadiah done. Don't have any idea what any of that stuff was, but I got it done. Well, see, all those things have real meaning, and they had real meaning in the time. And, and, you know, some of it is hard for us to recover because we're so distant, but some of it we can recover. We can look at some of that and understand this is what was going on, and this is why God said these things. And 
There's still future judgment in some of these cases in these situations. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I want to just ask you again, how many of you have ever said to yourself, are these, you know, these terrible people and these terrible things, are they going to get away with this forever? All the injustice that I see on the face of the earth, will people get away with it forever? We ask ourselves that question, don't we? It feels like they will sometimes, but the reality is they will not. The thing is, God's on a whole different time level than us. God is patient. We are not. We are frustratingly on, you know, impatient. We want things to happen right now. If somebody does something we think is really horrible, we want them to face judgment right now in their lifetime so we can watch it. Because it's more important for us to see it than it is for it to actually happen. That's the reality of it. That's why God warns us. He says, you know, judgment is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. Don't you go out and avenge because you really have no place in this, even though you think you do. You think this is all about you, but it's not about you. It's about me, God says. And he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Instead, he tells us the very difficult things like love your enemy, which is extraordinarily difficult. And God says, I'll take care of all the rest. That's on my time frame. So this is just another passage that kind of points out the fact that things happened in the ancient world, really horrible, terrible things that we would look at today and go, oh my gosh, look at how terrible that is. Did God just forget? Did God just do nothing about that? Well, no, God didn't forget. He didn't do nothing about it. Find an Edomite today. Can't find one. And someday, that whole judgment will come about. You know? Part of what we have to understand in these Old Testament passages and as we go into Revelation is it's not about us. It's about God and His timing and His judgment and when He wants things to happen. But don't ever think that things will, you know, there's no answer for these things. That there's no ultimate justice because the Bible tells us there is. And at some points you just have to put your faith in God and say, okay, God, I'm just going to trust you. I don't have the answers to this. And, and it chafes at me when I see this injustice. But I know one day you're going to answer, answer the, the, the bell on this, God, and you're going to take care of this. And I'm just going to trust you. It's not easy, but that is what we're called to do. I want to look at another Old Testament passage here real quickly. And this is a passage, this is back in Isaiah, which we looked at a lot of Isaiah passages last week. But I want to look at one more just to stress the problem that this has been a continual refrain of God's throughout the entire Bible, both Old Testament and New. That part of the problem that Israel has, part of the problem that the Jewish people have, and why they continue to fall away from the Lord and not follow His commands, while, why ultimately they did not, as a people, accept their Messiah and, and rejected and killed Jesus, 
I mean, why, you know, why do these things happen? And sometimes, you know, and I've heard, I've heard us say this. We've all done this. I, I've heard it a thousand times. Well, boy, you know, I, I just can't believe that Israel doesn't obey. I, I just can't believe they act that way. Boy, if, you know, if I would have been back then, I'd have done it differently. Oh, really? We're awfully arrogant considering we didn't, you know, walk in their shoes. How often a week do you not follow the Lord? And you have the Holy Spirit living in you. They didn't. You're indwelt by God. You're a brand new creature, the Bible says. Spiritually alive. And how often do we not live after God? So we shouldn't be quite so arrogant. But you know, there was a real problem with the leadership of the Jewish people. There was a problem the whole way from the beginning to the time of Christ. You know, what happened when the Jewish people had a real godly leader? Someone like Moses or David or Samuel. What happened? The people thrived, didn't they? You know, they came closer to the Lord. But then what happened when they didn't have a godly leader? The people strayed from the Lord. And more often than not, they did not have godly leaders. Think of the time of Jesus. How often did you see in the Gospels where the people come running to the leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the high priests, and they would say to them, doesn't this have to be this Messiah? Doesn't this have to be the son of David? Look at what he's doing. And they always had some kind of reason why, oh, no, 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 that's not the Messiah. That's not the Messiah. They even went as far as accusing Jesus of doing things by the power of Satan, the power of Beelzebub. And at that point, Jesus cursed them. He said, this is a cursed generation. The unpardonable sin. You guys have all heard the unpardonable sin, and people have been afraid of it for 2,000 years and don't really look at what it's all about. That's what the unpardonable sin was. A rejection of their Messiah. That's all connected to that passage. It's not a sin you can commit in modern times. They, you know, the ones who rejected their Messiah, they committed an unpardonable sin. Closest you can get to it is die without accepting Christ. That's kind of like, you know, kind of our version of it. Dying without Christ. So don't worry about it. Like as far as, you know, whether you know, some sin you think is the impardonable sin. It's not. But there's always been a problem with the leadership. I want you guys to look at uh, verses 14 through 22 of Isaiah 28. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Speaking of the coming Messiah someday. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. 
Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and the water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away morning after morning by day and by night. It will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. I love the imagery. The picture of a very uncomfortable person trying to stretch out on a bed where their, feet, their legs are hanging over or wrap themselves in a blanket to get warm and, and there's not enough blanket. He said, that's what it's going to be for you. That's how uncomfortable you're going to be because of my judgment upon you. The Lord will rise up as he did in Mount Perizim and he will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon. Those were ancient victories of, of, of God over Israel's enemies. To do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. God speaks to Isaiah and takes dead aim at the leadership of the Jewish people. And he says, you make these covenants with these ancient enemies, these people around you, and you think that somehow that will save you. You think that when the scourge comes, they won't be able to touch you. But none of that will help you. When I bring judgment upon you, none of that will help you. All you're doing is leading my people astray. Why do you think God was so hard on the Pharisees? Because they're the ones who had God's word. They're the ones that should have been leading them to their Messiah instead of away from their Messiah. Even to this day, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I love the nation of Israel, and I think we should support Israel as much as we can but you do realize even this day the leadership of Israel is not godly Israel is an agnostic nation it has one of the highest percentages of agnostics and atheists in in the world people still to this day do not lead their people toward to God and it's always kind of been the case of of the leadership of the Jewish people and, and it's sad. It's one of the saddest things. It's, you know, it's why God wanted to be their leader himself. That's why he called himself their warrior. And here again, it points to, and, and, and there are some people who even believe part of this agreement here is, is foreshadowing the signing of a peace treaty between the, the is, Israel and the Antichrist. Right before, you know, that's the starting point of, of the tribulation. So, you know, that problem continues to exist. Unfortunately, we should all pray that the Jewish people turn their heart toward their Messiah, toward their God. Come to see Jesus as, as their Messiah. I want to close with 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 10 through 12. You might say, well, 2 Peter, that's not in the Old Testament. But I want you to see how, not just in the book of Revelation, 
But I want you to see how even other New Testament writers saw those Old Testament passages. Hear Peter speaking of the day of the Lord. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Peter don't pull no punches, does he? He's clearly speaking of the future. Peter clearly sees the day of the Lord as a future event, does he not? And he said there's going to come a day where God's going to destroy all this. And since that's going to happen, essentially why do you keep putting so much effort and so much faith into this world? Into the people of this world. He says, since you know this is true, what, what, sort of, what sort of people should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and, to the spe- and speed it's coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the, earth, of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt with the heat. Peter makes a wonderful point. He says, look, if you really believe all that, then that should affect how you live. You should be more godly people because of that. You, you know, what's the purpose of studying something like Revelation? I figured this was a good time for, to hit this, you know, as we're about halfway through the book. What's the purpose of studying a book like that? It's to affect us. And how we live. We should be better Christians because we know a day of judgment is coming. We should be less attached to the things of this world. Put less faith in the, in the people of this world. The leaders of this world. Because we know the day is coming. Where the things and the people of this world will pass away. But yet we become so attached to the world, we become put so much faith in the world and, and look to the world for our solutions and for our joy and for our answers. Peter says that's how we, should, we shouldn't live that way. Because all this will be gone someday. Do you believe that or don't you? Is, is essentially what Peter's saying. That's how we should look at the day of the Lord as we study this. It should drive us to be better and more like Christ. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for these Old Testament passages. Many of them are very difficult. Uh, Father, and, and, and I will be the first to admit, I, I do not understand everything about these. I know that you have blessed your church and your people with great scholars who spend a lifetime studying these ancient languages and the ancient history and culture to try to find answers and even they don't understand all these and can't agree on all these. But yet, Father, we see that they are there and we can learn from them. We can learn how much you treasure your people and how much you want your people to love you and serve you and obey you. And Father, as we look at these end time passages, as we go back next week to Revelation, Uh, Father, help us to 
help us to see those things and be humbled by them and want to be more godly people because of what we read. Father, help us to put our, our faith ultimately in you. Know that, that, that you ultimately will bring justice in these, in these circumstances. And we just praise you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Next week, read chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11. We will jump back into our study of Revelation next week.